about uh, the, the hereafter. Life uh, deals with uh, questions about uh, the, the hereafter. And this morning, we are going to be asking the question, what will heaven be like? What will heaven be like? And um, we're going to read the first five verses of this chapter, and then I'm going to ask you to leave your Bibles open and because we're going to be talking through the rest of this chapter. Now, God has shown John many amazing things. He, he's shown him what is going to happen when time ends. And he is, uh, he, he's seen the, the coming battle of Armageddon in which Jesus victoriously conquers over all evil. Uh, John has been shown the glorious 1,000 year reign of Jesus Christ as king over all of the earth. Uh, and John has been shown how Jesus is going to banish Satan, his demons, and all the uh, evil in the world into the lake of fire for all eternity. And then John writes these incredible words beginning in Revelation chapter 21 and verse 1. He says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth passed away, and there is no longer any sea. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people, and God himself will be among them. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and there will no longer be any death. There will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. The first things have passed away. And he who sits on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. And he said, Right, for these words are faithful and true. Let's pray together. Our Father, thank you for giving us this incredible revelation of heaven. Lord, we feel so inadequate today to be able to even broach this this subject. And and we do pray as we sang this morning that your Holy Spirit would would fill the atmosphere, fill here, and and we you would have your will and your way in our minds and our hearts. Open our minds to give us that that greater understanding of your holiness, of your greatness, of what you have for us. And Lord, I, I pray for those who have not made that decision to trust you, that today you would woo their hearts to yourself and help them to make that decision. And we pray this now in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. It's interesting to me when commercials for t- new televisions come on your, your television. You know, a voice... Uh, comes on and begins to to tout all the new advantages of this of this television, and they begin to tell you about you know the curvature of the of the uh, screen and the greater uh, resolution and the clarity of uh, of the colors and all the wonderful things about that television, and and while they're telling you about how wonderful it is, you're watching this supposedly superior television on your old screen, on your inferior screen. 
And, and while you, you know, you can, you can hear what they're saying about it, it doesn't look really any better than what your screen presents to you. And you know, I always say, well, I'm not going to waste my money on that new TV because it doesn't look any better than one I already have. You know, and, and really, it's impossible for them to show you their new television like it really appears on that old screen. They can tell you about it, but you can't see it for yourself. And the same is true when it comes to John trying to describe heaven. John is limited by human language and human experience. All he can really try to tell us about heaven is what we already have here. He can't, he can't go beyond human language and human experience to explain this, the incredible things that Jesus Christ is showing him. It's, it's like looking at, uh, you know, a 4K television on an old tube black and white TV. We just kind of generally get the idea of what it is. We never get the full impact of it. And and yet God has taken care to tell us about heaven. He desires heaven to be on our hearts and and our minds. And Revelation 21 and 22 contain a preview of heaven. These chapters describe in, in much detail what heaven is like. And, and really, it's, it's kind of overwhelming. It's, it's very difficult to even begin to take it all in. The focal point of these chapters is John's description of the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven. It's the capital city of heaven. And the new Jerusalem is, is representative of everything that will be in the new heaven and new earth. Understand, when we're looking at the capital city, we're not looking at the totality of heaven. We're just looking at the capital city. There's a whole new creation, a new heaven, a new earth. But we're just kind of getting this one little picture here of part of heaven. And from these chapters, I want to point out just four characteristics of heaven. First of all, heaven will be a beautiful place. In uh, verse 9, we begin to read. It says, Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of seven last plagues came and spoke with me, saying, Come here, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God. And her brilliance was like a very costly stone, a stone of crystal clear jasper. Now, these verses tell that there are two primary reasons why heaven is such a beautiful place. First, it's a beautiful place because of the bride of the Lamb. You see, in verse 9, he says, Come here, and I will show you what the bride, the bride, the wife of the Lamb. The, the New Jerusalem is described as a bride because it draws its character from its inhabitants. And those uh, occupants consist of the bride of the Lamb. That's a title 
that, that is originally given to the church in Revelation chapter 19 and verse 7. But you see, now it's expanded. It's broadened to include all of those who are redeemed of all the ages. All those who are related to God by salvation. And I love the fact that God describes the redeemed people of God and the city coming down as a bride. You know, brides are always beautiful. I've had the opportunity to stand beside many bridegrooms as they've gotten their first glimpse of the bride as she's about to come down the aisle. And, um, I, you know, I've never seen anything other than a beautiful bride. Now, I've had my, my doubts on a couple of occasions, but, um, but that's simply because they look so different than they normally did. But, but there's, they're always beautiful because in Revelation chapter 19 and verse 7, it says, the bride made herself ready. You know, brides do a lot to get ready for a wedding, don't they? I mean, they, they diet, they exercise, they, they tan. I mean, they, they get their nails done, they get their hair done, they soak in all this good smelling stuff. Uh, they, 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 um, do all kinds of things. There's a lot of things probably I don't even know about. But they put on a beautiful dress, and they carry flowers. And when they come down that aisle, it's, it's a total makeover. You know, it's, it's, they're beautiful. And the Bible describes the church of the redeemed of the ages as a bride. You see, though we are imperfect now, though we are so far from what God would really have us to be, on that day... In that city, when, when we see Jesus, we will be made perfect. We will be made beautiful for the Lord Jesus. A heaven will be a beautiful place because of the bride of the Lamb. But heaven will be also be a beautiful place because of the glory of God. And you can see there in verse 11 that he says, Having the glory of God, her brilliance was like a very costly stone, as a stone of crystal clear jasper. You remember uh, John is transported to this great high mountain uh, to be able to even see this, this this incredible city that is coming down out of heaven. Now, think about earthly cities come up out of the ground, but this city is coming down from heaven, from God. And I think about, you know, the great cities that I have visited in my lifetime. And, and oftentimes when you when you first see them from the distance, man, they're so they can be so, you know, impressive, so overwhelming. Now I grew up in a in a in a small town in southwestern Virginia. The first quote city I ever saw was was Bristol. And it was pretty impressive for a little boy from the from the country with all of its its buildings and its big sign that says, you know, welcome to to Bristol, Virginia, Tennessee, a good place to live. And and I, I was kind of impressed with all that. But you know what I soon found when I got uh, closer, when I got into the heart of that city, you know what I found? I found the very same thing I found in every other city that I've visited since. 
I've found that inside there are some very ugly things. Things like um, crime and drugs and alcohol and prostitution and gambling and, and, and hopelessness and, and poverty and greed. It's incredible. But the heavenly city will not only be beautiful from a distance, the closer you get to it, the more beautiful it will be. It's, you see, if you think about it, we're a lot like those cities. We can be pretty impressive on the outside when people see us from a distance. But when you get closer to us, people begin to see all the imperfections. But it's not like that with Jesus. The closer you get to Jesus, the more beautiful you see he really is. And he changes us and makes us like him. It becomes this beautiful part. His glory overwhelms us and changes us. And, and he talks about that in verse 11. Having the glory of God. The city and its inhabitants have the glory of God. And her brilliance was like a very costly stone. As a stone of crystal clear jasper. This city is like a huge diamond radiating the glory of God throughout it. And heaven is so beautiful that we can't even imagine it, much less describe it. It will take an eternity to be able to experience it. Heaven will be a beautiful place because of the bride of the, of the Lamb and because of the glory of the Lord. And heaven will be a commemorative place. A commemorative place. Now, a commemorative is something that is made to mark uh, an event or honor a person. But a commemorative is different from a memorial in that it not only uh, memorizes someone, brings is a memorial to someone, but it also provides a practical purpose for people, for its citizens. For example, the Lincoln Memorial... In, in Washington, D.C., serves as nothing more than a memorial. It has no practical purpose other than being a memorial. But now a $5 bill not only memorializes Abraham Lincoln, it also provides a practical service to the citizens of our nation. You see, the same is true of other commemoratives, things like you know stamps, coins, scholarships, uh, parks, schools, hospitals, libraries, roads, bridges. See, they give us, they give us a, a benefit while pointing to the source of those benefits. Robert Byrd has his name on a, on a school, a hospital, a highway, and probably many other things in our state because it's, it's, it's recognized that he was uh, central in seeing those benefits come into our state. When we go see our grandchildren, we travel a, par- a portion of the uh, Billy Graham Parkway. And it isn't as appropriate as that this man who, who opened the highway to the knowledge of God to our nation has a, has a parkway named after him. Just recently, uh, a, a bridge was commemorated to our own Glenn Lowe. Glenn was a key person in, in designing, maintaining, and repairing those, those bridges. 
And see, but we also know that he was not only uh, uh, active in bridging uh, between mountains and, and valleys and roads, but he was also active in bridging between God and man. So you see, as we look to the design of the capital city of heaven, what we see is that it's filled with commemoratives. It, these things are not only uh, honoring to God and, and, and recognizing people of faith, but it provides a practical benefit to the citizens of heaven at the same time. Let's consider some of the things that briefly that are commemorated in heaven. First of all, God's promises to Israel are commemorated in heaven. In verse 12, it tells us it had a great high wall. You say, high wall? Why was there a great high wall? Was it, was it to keep uh, believers in? No, we know it wasn't that because it tells us that the gates of, of the kingdom of New Jerusalem are going to be open always. Was it to keep unbelievers out? No, it wasn't that because we know that Satan and all the unbelievers have already been consigned to hell for all eternity. Instead, these walls are for the glory of God, and they symbolize his protection and our security in him. Verse 12 continues about these walls. These walls have 12 gates, and at the gates, 12 angels, and names were written on them, which are the names of the 12 tribes of the sons of Israel, the names of every tribe of Israel will be inscribed on these 12 gates. And this commemorates God's covenant promises to Israel. Think about it. This is the ultimate blessing that God promised to Abraham and his descendants. The wonderful final promised land. The wonderful glorious place that God said he would give to his people. And let me remind you that Israel cannot be erased and Israel has not been replaced. Israel will always have a special place in the heart and the mind of God and even in heaven. Israel will be commemorated. It reminds us that all the Old Testament saints are going to be there. Abraham and and Moses and David and, and Isaiah and all of those Old Testament saints. And we will see them there. And verse 13 says there, there were three gates on the east, three gates on the north, three gates on the south, and three gates on the west. These 12 gates remind us that this city is not meant to contain us. But that we have, this is, again, as I say, it's just the beginning, the, the capital city. This is just the capital city. There's a whole creation, new heaven and new earth for us to explore out there. And it's the, it's the infinite promised land. And we're going to go in and out of those gates and every time we go in and out of those gates, the covenant promises of God will be commemorated. But, the, but not only is Israel commemorated, but the promises to the church are commemorated. Verse 14 says, And the wall of the city had 12 foundation stones, and on them were the 12 names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. Now see, this, this shows us that God's New Covenant people, the church, will also be in the 
New Jerusalem because of the sacrificial blood of the Lord Jesus. And and it's appropriate that the apostles' names are written on the foundation of the gates because uh, Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 20 tells us that the apostles are the foundation, he says, the, the built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus being the cornerstone. Why does he say that? Because the apostles gave us an understanding of the meaning of the death and the burial and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. They explained that to us, and they gave us the New Testament scriptures. They're the foundation of the church. And so it's appropriate, then, that they are commemorated there at the the foundation wall of the gates. And verse 15 says, The one who spoke with me had a gold measuring rod to measure the city and its gates and its wall. The city is laid out as a square, and its length is as great as its as the width. And he measured the city with the rod 1,500 miles. Its length and width and height are equal. Now, get this. What you're looking at here is the place that Jesus said he went to prepare for us. Remember what he said, I'll go and I will prepare a place for you. Friends, this is it. And the new Jerusalem is essentially a giant cube. 1,500 miles high, 1,500 miles wide, 1,500 miles deep. If that city were to be superimposed on uh, uh, the continent of America today, it would go from, it would extend from Canada to the Gulf of Mexico and from Colorado to the Atlantic Ocean. Now you see why John had to be taken up on this big distant mountain even to be able to see this city. It's an incredible city that is coming down out of heaven. And it's been estimated that this city will have about two and a quarter million square miles and it will, it will be easily able to uh, inhabit over a hundred billion people. New Jerusalem is not all there is. It's just the capital. And apparently he has multiple levels. Henry Morris says this. It should also be remembered that the new bodies of the resurrected saints will be like those of angels. No longer limited by gravitational or electronic, uh, electromagnetic forces at present. Thus, it will be as easy for the inhabitants to travel vertically as horizontally. In the new Jerusalem. See, that's why it's a cube. You can go up as easily as you can go across or this way. As Jesus promised, there's going to be plenty of room, see, in the Father's house. And the Bible says that if you've trusted Jesus, this is where you will spend eternity. But not only is, is Israel and the church commemorated, but God's radiant glory is Commemorated. Verse 17 says, and he measured its wall 72 yards according to human measurements, which are also angelic measurements. The, the material of the wall was jasper and the city was pure gold like clear glass. Now, 72 yards talks about the thickness of the walls. And then, as if to emphasize that the fact that the city is, is, is real, it's literal and not some mystic, he says, John has a footnote, he says, the dimensions were, that are given are given according to human measurements, which are also angelic measurements. In other words, a, a foot is a foot, and a yard is a yard, and a mile is a mile, whether you're an angel or whether you're a human. This is a real place that he's showing us. 
And the material of this massive city was made of jasper, which the Bible describes as, as being a, a diamond-like material, clear, translucent. Not only was the wall transparent, but the, the, also it says the city was pure gold like clear glass. Now, see, you can't even really imagine that. You see it as pure gold, but yet it's clear as glass. Why? Because the new Jerusalem, everything in it is transparent so that the glory of God radiates through it all. No matter where you are, you see the glory of God. It's an an incredible thing. In verse 19, it says, The foundation stones of the city walls were adorned with every kind of precious stone. And it names these, these stones. Each layer of the city's foundation walls made of 12 different solid precious stones. And these brightly colored stones refract the brilliance of God's glory into a dazzling display of colors shining throughout the, the newly created heaven and earth. It's it's a, it's a, just a breath. It's breathtaking beauty, almost in, it's indescribable from a human standpoint. And, and finally, God's great suffering is commemorated in heaven. In verse twenty, it tells us, and the twelve gates were twelve pearls. Each one of the gates was a single pearl. And the street of the city was pure gold, again, like transparent glass. And we often hear people talking about the pearly gates. But understand that these gates are not covered with pearls. He says each one of the gates was a single pearl. Single pearl. Uh, These are pearls like no oyster has ever produced. And, and, and these pearls commemorate a great spiritual truth in heaven. Uh, John Phillips says it so much better than I can. Here's what he says. All other precious gems and metals are, st- or st- are stones. But a pearl is a gem formed with, within the oyster. The only one formed by living flesh. The humble oyster receives an irritation or a wound. And around the offending article that has penetrated and hurt it, the oyster builds a pearl. The pearl, we might say, is the answer of the, of the oyster to that which injured it. The glory land is God's answer in Christ to wicked men who crucified heaven's beloved and put him to an open shame. How like God it is to make the gates of the new Jerusalem of pearl. The saints, as they come and go, will forever be reminded as they pass the gates of glory that access to God's home is only because of Calvary. Think of the size of those gates. Think of the supernatural pearls from which they are made. What gigantic suffering is symbolized by those gates of pearl. Throughout the endless ages shall be, we shall be reminded by those pearly gates of the immense sufferings of Christ. Those pearls hung eternally at the access routes to glory will remind us forever of one who hung upon a tree and whose answer to those who injured him was to invite them 
to share his home. In heaven, the suffering of Christ will forever be commemorated by the pearls, the gates of pearl. Here's number three. Heaven will be a holy place. Heaven will be a holy place because of what is missing. Sometimes what is missing can tell you a lot. You know, there was a time when you could drive throughout the uh, neighborhoods of America and you could see in just about every house a, a window air conditioning unit. Do you all remember those? <laughs> and I, I remember when I was a kid, my dad started working in the mines. And he was on the hoodow shift. Anybody ever know what a hoodow shift is? That's, that's, it's when you're working at night. And so he had to sleep during the day. And it, boy, in the summertime, you know, it get hot. And it's really hard to sleep during the day when it's hot. And so we got this huge window air conditioning unit from the Sears catalog store where my mom worked. We took this thing, I mean, it was heavy. We took that thing, put it in the back bedroom. And it was so heavy, we had to put two befores under it, keep from ripping the window out. And dad would turn that thing on and, and it would get that room, I mean, ice cold. But in the next room, it was 90, you know. It's just, that's the way those things worked. And, and when you would go, you know, that's the way it used to be. They were everywhere. But now... You rarely see them. Why? Because people have something better. They have called central air conditioning. And it gets all the rooms cool. Well, you know, that's what it, the way it is in heaven. When John talks about the holiness of heaven, he talks about it by showing what will be missing in heaven. And three things he points out are going to be missing in heaven. One is the temple. In verse 22, he says, saw no temple in it. For the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb are its temple. Why is the temple missing? Because something better has replaced it. The temple represented the dwelling place of God, the presence of God, and the holiness of God. But now, we don't need the temple. Why? Because God himself is there. We don't need a temple because we have God's own presence, God's own holiness in our midst, and we always have it. We don't have to go to the temple to find God's presence. Many scholars have noticed that, that Jesus corresponds perfectly to everything that was in the Old Testament temple. The temple had a single door. Jesus said, I am the door. The temple had an altar for sacrifice, and, and you see Jesus shed his blood on the cross for all of us. The temple had a laver for a, a place of cleansing, and, and, and Jesus has forever cleansed us with his blood. The temple had a table of showbread on it. Jesus said, I am the bread. The temple had a golden lampstand. Jesus said, I am the light of the world. The temple had a place of burning incense where the prayers were offered up by the priest. But now Jesus is our great high priest and he intercedes for us forever. He is our temple. He's everything we need. And, and, and he also tells us the light of the sun will be missing. See verse 23, and the city has no need of the sun or the moon to shine on it, for the glory of God has illumined it, and its lamp is the Lamb. The new Jerusalem, there's no need for the sun or the moon to shine. Why? Because we've got something better. We have the Lamb himself who provides all the light, his holiness 
fills New Jerusalem with glorious light. And something else is missing. He tells us anyone who practices sin. Verse 27 says nothing unclean. And no one who practices abomination and lying shall ever come into it, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. Who will be there? We've already seen the Old Testament saints are going to be there. Let me tell you, every unborn child who's been aborted will be there. Every child who's died in infancy Innocent. Now, I don't know whether they're going to be there as children or are they going to enter heaven like Adam and Eve entered the Garden of Eden as adults. I don't know how they're going to be there, but they're going to be there. We've already seen that believers of every age who've trusted in Christ are going to be there. The question is, are you going to be there? Are you sure, certain you will be there? Because he says, only those whose names are written in the book of life will be there. Is your name written in the book of life? How do you get your name written in the book of life? When you trust Christ. When you trust his death on your behalf. When you turn from your sin. When you repent and you trust him and you are cleansed by him then your name is written in the Lamb's book of life. A man dreamed that he stood outside the gates of heaven and people were trying to get in. A man came and knocked on the door and a voice from inside asked, who who seeks entrance into heaven? And the man said, I am a generous man. And the voice from inside said, what is the password? And he said, charity. And the voice said, from inside said, depart from me, you worker of iniquity. I never knew you. Another man came and knocked on the door and, and he said, and the, and, and the voice came from the inside and said, who seeks entrance into heaven? And the, and the man said, I am a moral man. And the voice said, what is the password? And he said, honesty. And the voice from inside said, depart from me. You workers of iniquity, I never knew you. Another man came, knocked on the door. Again, that voice from the inside said, who seeks entrance into heaven? And the man said, I am a religious man. And he said, what is the password? He said, church. And he said, depart from me, you workers of iniquity. I never knew you. And finally, another man comes and he knocks on the door and that voice again comes from the inside and says who seeks entrance into heaven and what is the password and the voice of that man says in my hands no price I bring only to the cross I cling and the voice from inside said open wide the gate and let him in for such is the kingdom of God who will enter heaven Not the good man, because the Bible says there is none good. Who will enter heaven? Not the religious man, because your religion can't save you. 
Who will enter heaven? Not the person with good intentions because the highway to hell is paved with good intentions. Who will enter heaven? Only the person whose name is written in the Lamb's book of life who repents and turns to Jesus. Have you got your name written in the Lamb's book of life? And finally, let me say this. Heaven will be a joyous place. Will heaven be really be a fun place? A happy place? Well, friends, the answer is yes. But you, do you understand that there are many people that are convinced that heaven is not going to be that fun? That heaven, they think that heaven is going to be boring? When I was a kid, I grew up watching, you know, Looney Tunes. You know, Bugs Bunny and Foghorn, Leghorn. Uh, Roadrunner, Coyote, you know, all those cartoons of of yesteryear. And whenever they wanted to picture one of those cartoons characters as dying, they would float up to heaven. They would have angels, wings, a halo, and a harp. And they would sit on a cloud and play their harp. When I was in college, I had a Mormon professor... And he would mock Christianity using that cartoon version of Christianity. And he would say, who wants to go to heaven and sit on a cloud and play a harp all day? That's going to be boring. His idea of heaven was procreating his own planet full of children. He thought it was going to be a wonderful place because he was going to be uh, always involved in procreation. A lot like many Muslims believe. Uh, they, they will blow themselves up because they're promised seven virgins in heaven to keep them satisfied throughout eternity. But you know, friends, it doesn't even have to get that far. For many people, heaven is playing golf or hunting or fishing or shopping the mall of heaven or eating at the eternal buffet or enjoying whatever other, you know, sensual pleasures that we can imagine here on earth. So we, tr- we transpose our, our desires here into heaven and we think, well, that would be heaven, we say. One of the questions that I've been asked in the, from our groups is, what will we be doing for all eternity? Isn't that a good question? Well, Revelation, when we move into Revelation 22, it shows us several reasons why heaven will be a joyous place. And it shows us some of the things that we're going to be doing in heaven. And, and let me tell you this, first of all. It doesn't give us details like, oh, you'll, be, you'll, you'll have a, heaven will be an endless uh, cruise where there's uh, buffets and entertainment. It didn't put it like that. But what it tells us is that he says, we will be satisfied in heaven. Verse 1 of chapter 22 says, Then he showed me a river of the water of life, clear as crystal, coming from the throne of God and of the Lamb. Now listen, that simple description tells us that every God-given thirst, every God-given desire that we have will be satisfied by God in heaven. Are you with me? Everything that we need, will be, we will be satisfied. Have you ever felt unsatisfied in this world? 
Have you ever felt bored in this world? Do you feel bored now? Don't answer that. You know, have you ever thought that maybe we feel bored on this world, in this earth, because we weren't made for this world? That we were made for heaven to live in the presence of God? Friends, let me tell you, you'll never be bored in the presence of God. You'll never get to the end of God. And listen, we, he tells us, John tells us, we will be energized in heaven. Verse 2, on the other side of the river, there was a tree of life bearing 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. Now think about it. There's going to be a tree of life. And the, and the leaves, he says, of those trees will be for the healing of all of heaven's inhabitants. Now, that's a little bit misleading because we don't really need healing in heaven. Because remember what we already read. There's no more pain. There's no more suffering. There's no more death. There's no more dying in, in heaven. But the, the, the Greek word for healing is the, is the Greek word therapia. We get our word, English word therapy or therapeutic from it. You, you might look at it like this. It's the, the, these leaves, the fruit and the leaves of this tree are like uh, super vitamins. You don't take vitamins in order to heal a disease. You take them to give general, general health. And what he's saying is that God's giving us health. God's giving us energy, everything that we need to do whatever it is that we need to do in in heaven. Heaven and life in heaven will be rich and exciting and full of energy. You say, well, what will we do with all of that energy? I'm glad you asked. We will serve Jesus in heaven. Look at verse 3. There will no longer be any curse, and the throne of God and the Lamb will be in it, and his bondservants will serve him. You get that? You know what we're going to be? We're going to be serving Jesus. And when you use your energy to serve Jesus, it'll be the most fulfilling thing that you ever do in your life. And the, and the infinite mind of God has things for us to do in heaven. It doesn't describe what they are, but I'll guarantee you that it'll be the most fulfilling, most rewarding thing you ever do. You know, when we get bored, what do we do? We go do something. We do something. We, we are made that way, and God has stuff, if I can say it that way, for us to do in heaven. And, and, and then, so we're going to serve Jesus, and since his, there will be no temple in the New Jerusalem, the throne of God and the Lamb will be in it. The Lamb has bought us, and we will reign throughout eternity, and his bondservants We'll serve him forever. Friend, he's, he's, he's the king, and we get to serve him. So, one, notice this. He's in verse 4. We will see Jesus in heaven. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. We will see his face. You remember what God told Moses when he put him in a rock and, and was going to pass in front of him? Remember what he told him in, in, in Exodus thirty three twenty. He says, you cannot see my face, for no man can see me and live. But friend, then when we are transformed in holiness, we will be able to look into the face of God and see him. And I'll guarantee you, nobody will be bored in doing that.
Heaven will be a place of perfect righteousness. And we will see his face. He goes on in the end of that verse and he says, There will no longer be any night and they will not have need of the light of the lamp or the light of the sun because the Lord God will illumine them. That's, that's going to be some incredible glory to look at, isn't it? And finally, he says, we will reign with Jesus in heaven. See the last part of verse 5, he says, And they will reign forever and ever. That's going to be the fulfillment of Christ's promise in chapter 3 and verse 21. He who overcomes, I will grant to him to sit down with me on my throne as I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. You see, this is an encouragement for us to persevere. It's an encouragement for us to remember that this life is not what it's all about. This is not the hope of our fulfillment, of our significance. The hope is in the future. And he says, keep on persevering now. Keep on doing what you need to do. And know that ultimately that you will then rule and reign with the Lord Jesus Christ for all eternity. Friend, don't believe all of the lies. Don't get caught up in this world. Put your mind and your heart where it really matters. The eternal capital city of New Jerusalem is going to be breathtakingly, incredibly beautiful. Unimaginable to the human mind fully. And and, and from it, the brilliant glory is going to shine out into all of a new heaven and a new earth. And we are going to be in in this place filled with all of the reminders, all of the All of the commemoratives of of what God has done in the past. And then we're going to have that wonderful pleasure of seeing him, of serving him, and of spending all eternity fully satisfied, fully energized in his presence. Isn't it just overwhelming? Isn't it just difficult to take in? Here I am. I I feel like I'm trying to describe that new TV to people watching on an old tube, black and white. I just can't do it. I can't even see it. But God is good. Now, my question to you is, is your name written in the Lamb's Book of Life? Are you going to go to heaven? Let's pray. Our Father.